Welcome to You Talking with Greg. I have a very special guest today. It's me. That's right. Um, I'm going to be interviewing myself, or more accurately. Uh, I'm going to be walking folks through a uh, emerging formulation uh, called You Talk 20. Um, this is the goal here is to really try for You Talk insiders. Uh, to give us an opportunity to see all of the different pieces and their interrelations in a way that sort of is both holistic and elegant. Obviously, Utah's a huge system. It's got a multiplicity of different pieces to it and trying to get it coordinated so that people can get an angle and a handle on what it is is not easy. Um, but this is an opportunity for, uh, or I'm taking this opportunity to then share with folks this structure. Um, I should note that uh, I, in order to do that, I've developed PowerPoint. I'm sorry for folks on Podbean who are listening. I'll certainly give some description, but this is definitely a YouTube watching uh, presentation of you talking with Greg. Uh, and the goal then is for you talk insiders uh, to be able to understand what you talk 20 means, and then to utilize that to see sort of the, the whole of the meta psychology, scientific humanistic philosophy way of life, uh, at least in relationship to the sort of iconic ideas and how they um, might be represented uh, to give a picture of the whole. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. So um, here's a picture uh, that when I said sort of elegant, uh, here's a potentially um, simple symbol uh, that may be able to capture sort of the core of what you talks about. Um, well, as you'll see on the, li the line, is gonna represent that which is external to you talk. And it's also gonna represent sort of fragmented chaotic pluralism. And then the coherent circle is gonna represent an entry point into a potentially coherent integrated pluralism. Uh, sort of in the shape of an eye that allows you to see uh, the world coherently, and that is what Utah 20 does. Now, in terms of the Utah 20, um, the outside refers to a countdown. We start with uh, negative three, which situates us in the sociocultural environment, a particular history of justification uh, that we identify as the Enlightenment gap. And I'm going to now just run through what these are and then uh, we'll, and that drops into the problem of psychology, drops into the problem of psychotherapy, and ultimately problem of psyche. And then there are 20 ideas, which I will now walk us through um, to then create the picture of this. So I was going around, for those of you that can't see it, basically we're going around a circle and identifying key icons, the metaphysical empirical flower, tree of knowledge system, justification systems theory, behavioral investment theory, the influence matrix, Cast, the Wheel of Development, the Nested Model of Well-Being, COMMO, the Wicked Wisdom B, the Wick WB, the Radical Mathematical Humanistic Equation, the Educational Infinity Loop, the Wisdom Energy Icon, the Standard, the Stepping Stone, the Periodic Table of Behavior, the Map of Mind, the Dragon's Lair, and the Elephant Sun God, with a rotation then coming back to 20 on the iQuad coin. Um, so, that's basically uh, the overarching structure. Uh, so now what I'd like to do is just walk you through each one of these parts so you can then see how they uh, you know, constitute themselves. I'm going to be engaged in a pretty quick summary of these issues. Um, so we're not going to be spending a huge amount of time elaborating on them. My goal is to get through this uh, in about an hour uh, so that you can at least have the placeholders uh, of the various components. So we start with the enlightenment gap. So specifically, what are we referring to in, in the relationship to the enlightenment gap is the idea that as we shifted from sort of the scholastic framing of understanding the Christian Greek framing of understanding of the 15th, 16th century and built the modern empirical natural science enterprise, which I sometimes refer to as men's knowledge, which then begins to become wisdom oriented, which is then W-O-M-E-N-S, women's knowledge. But in the context of emerging the epistemology that was science, which basically then is the tracking 
of behavior in the world that you measure quantitatively and then experiment upon and develop correspondent models that are mathematically and quantitatively derivable that then allow you to then generate a particular logical, mathematical, quantifiable picture of matter in motion, of behavior in the world. As that system emerged, and in particular, as it became structured around uh, Newtonian matter in motion, um, what happened is that there was a break, uh, and indeed maybe there was never even a genuine coherence, but as the exterior behavioral epistemological structure of science grabbed a hold of the physical world and used that employed methodology and epistemology and then emerging physicalist ontology, what ultimately happens is a, is a philosophy that fails at the level of coherence, meaning that there is no genuine synthetic philosophy. And this is particularly, I would argue, uh, you can argue that synthetic philosophy is potentially achieved in Hegel and a few German idealist structures, and there's a particular line of thought. I'm going to follow and embed it in my own particular history um, is certainly through the British empirical in the American empirical structure, which I like to say is trap between the ontology of Newton, a physicalist ontology on the one hand, and the epistemology of Kant, epistemology of Kant being the idea that, okay, there are categories of mind, and we have access to phenomena, and it is not, there's no onto-epistemological structure that allows for consilience to place the human knower in relationship to the known with coherence. Ultimately, the Enlightenment gap scene is a statement that says is a fragmentation that can fundamentally then be seen on two different accounts uh, or this flip side of two different problems, one of which is the matter versus mind problem. So you get the classic mind-body problem, the philosophy of mind and its confusions in relationship to how to specify mental causation, the hard problem of consciousness, the relationship between uh, knowing and the known, all of those are tangled up uh, in relation so that we have um, a complete conglomerate of different approaches, but no coherence and consilience in relationship to matter or mind. The second facet of the enlightenment gap is the fact that as modernist science emerges, it's seen as sort of a transcendent idealist, maybe a transcendent realist kind of a view versus the socially constructed and pragmatic view that comes along with a postmodern critique of modernist truth claims. So you get a modernist versus postmodernist view um, regarding the nature of scientific knowledge relative to either subjective knowledge or socially constructed knowledge and a failure to reconcile the relationship between which scientific knowledge may yield truths, but also is a human subjectively constructed, socially constructed system of knowing. What's the proper relationship between science and the social construction of knowledge? And how do we understand scientific worldviews relative to other cultural worldviews? How do we understand the authority uh, that scientific knowledge might afford? Well, modernist versus postmodernist sensibilities differ tremendously in relationship to that. Um, and so I'm going to argue, or I'm arguing with the Enlightenment gap, is what we have is a chaotic, fragmented pluralism that starts with modern science that creates a set of knowledge systems, especially around physics, that then are going to break off and create confusions between matter and mind and confusion in relationship to the kind of knowledge scientific knowledge is relative to social and subjective. We see it in the mind-body problem. We see it in the um, modernist versus postmodernist. So the enlightenment gap is the current state of affairs and what gives rise to a chaotic, fragmented knowledge structure. Situated inside of the enlightenment gap is the, my home and analysis of what it is that you know, drives an enormous amount of my work, which is the problem of psychology. The second problem, countdown two, then is the fact that psychology emerges. And if we understand the enlightenment gap, we then have to see now the problem of psychology in a new light, which is essentially that it would inevitably be the case that there would not be a scientifically coherent formulation of mind that would yield a big picture view if indeed the enlightenment gap is structured in a way that does not afford metaphysical and ontological clarity, but instead commits to a particular epistemological view, an exterior behavioral kind of view that then can't be resolved with an interior qualitative view. The problem of psychology I stumbled upon, counting down to another problem. The original problem that I found myself actually encountering was the problem of psychotherapy. 
here again, we can say, well, given the problem of psychology, in retrospect, the problem of psychotherapy is hardly um, difficult to understand. Uh, the point being within psychotherapy, there are a multiplicity of different schools of thought, of different languages. There's no real way to adjudicate them. I did a you talking with Stephen Bacon that really suggests they're actually enormously equivalent in terms of the outcomes that they get. Um, and what is this set of knowledge? Uh, and how is it that we need to engage in people therapeutically? Well, there is no consensus. What you get is a multiplicity of different perspectives. You can apply eclecticism, meaning borrow from a different, but you get no coherence. And of course, if we're applying psychological therapy and we ask, well, what is the consensus understanding of the world via the science of psychology and realize there absolutely is none, it can only be uh, understood then that the therapeutic application of that knowledge is also going to be massively chaotically fragmented and pluralistic. So we have the enlightenment gap, leading to problem of psychology, leading to problem of psychotherapy. I'm also going to argue then that there's a problem of the psyche. Um, I in, intonated and suggested that what happens with the emergence of modern empirical natural science is a fundamental shift in epistemology. The shift in epistemology is away from subjective apprehension and the gripping function of the mind on the world and that um, iterative process, which was very important to Aristotle, but instead shifts to issues of measurement, mathematics, and an objective generalized position that is not dependent upon the qualitative subject. Hence, we get the issue of measurement, uh, tracking, mathematical tracking of behaviors uh, culminating in Newton. Um, and in the context then of that, a quantifiable behavioral analysis from an exterior position is then fundamental, that gives rise to general nomenthetic laws of the way the world works is actually fundamentally different than the epistemological position of a qualitative, unique, ideographic subject embedded in the real. And that's what I'm going to argue the psyche is. The psyche is the interior epistemic vector of each of us individually from the inside. It's local, it's particular, it's non-generalizable, it's qualitative, it's subjective. It's everything that science is not in terms of the language game it plays by. Now I'm positioning myself to say that science affords us a brilliant and very important epistemological position on the world. And at the same time, it isn't the case then that it can then just be everything in partly because the way in which it defines what is justifiable knowledge to begin with, that's the way epistemological language games work. They say, this is how you know, this is what legitimate knowledge is. And if you define in advance that these are the kinds of things that matter, then by definition, there will be blind spots. The U-Talk argues that we need a placeholder for the psyche, that the psyche should not be thought of as something that then doesn't exist in the scientific world, but rather is a variable and a frame and an epistemic function that is fundamentally different than the scientific worldview. It's unique, it's particular, it's qualitative, it's ideographic, it's embedded and defined by the real experiences of being of the individuals, not theoretical. In contrast, the theoretical structure of science is to identify the underlying generative mechanisms that give rise to the unfolding wave of behavior. So the problem of, psycho uh, of the psyche, and this is mentioned, Galileo's Error, I think is a book uh, that recently came out and a number of people certainly have said, what are we doing when we develop the sort of the metaphysics and epistemological structure of science? Utah says what you're doing is you're developing a behavioral epistemology, and then you need a behavioral ontology co-associated with that to generate a behavior, uh, behavioral onto epistemology. As we'll see, this is what actually Utah does. And at the same time, it does it in a way that says, hmm, I can place that in relationship to the real ideographic psyche. And this is where the conceptual difficulty, the metaphysical, ontological, epistemological, and meta-theoretical structures have been un unaccessible to make coherent this uh, iterative interrelation. And that's what Utah very much is about. We get then to the first idea in Utah. We're now entering into the Utah system, and idea one in the Utah system is the meme flower. The meme flower is the yellow flower that sits in the middle of the Utah tree of life. Its shape um, is a dialectic uh, uh, um, of uh, representing uh, along the lines of a yin yang diagram, which represents a dialectic polarity. Um, and it shows a particular relationship between M and E. The M is going to represent metaphysics. 
Metaphysics in this concept refers to the concepts and categories that individuals have, propositional network concepts and categories for defining reality and knowing. Okay? Uh, so this is a loose definition of metaphysics where it involves the naming, the concepts, the categories, the process by which it knows, and the models, the propositional modeling uh, that individuals engage in to know about the world. Empirical refers to the process by which data is brought in through the senses and observations are made in relationship to that. So a metaphysical empirical refers to the dialectic and the dimension and dichotomy between metaphysics as concepts and categories and the empirical as observations and data. The mean flower has a big me in the middle and then small me's around the end. The small me refers to each individual and their empirical experience of the world, the perspective and the watching of data come into the system that then gives rise to a metaphysical narrative structure that then justifies. The metaphysical narrative structure will be much more empirical, uh, and I mean, I'm sorry, propositional, whereas the empirical structure is much more perspectival to use some of John Verbeke's language. And indeed we can really see actually the metaphysics associated with a person proposition network this happens at the individual level. And then a big me refers to the large scale systems of justification uh, that then network together the understanding, the propositional network understanding of is and ought, and then relate to the organization of the data that are then gathered in relationship to this. Uh, so a big me system is a big me philosophical system. What the me flower suggests is a new opportunity then to build a network of relations between individual and collective understanding and a coordinated system of collective understanding is what we're lacking and what the UTOC system affords. Okay? At a more technical level, I built uh, the me conception as I critique psychology and psychology's emphasis only on the empirical and the failing to see the need for a descriptive metaphysics to clarify what we mean by mind and behavior. And indeed my deep work in psychology basically caused me to back up and, and, and find first a meta-theoretical structure. That's why I did my first book. And behind the meta-theoretical structure is actually the concepts and categories and their interrelation to depict an ontology. Um, so you get from meta-theory, which is actually what the Unified Theory 2011 book is about. And my current book, which I'm just finishing up, The Problem of Psychology and a New Vision for its Solution, specifies the metaphysics associated with mind and behavior, i.e. the concepts and categories and what these uh, terms denote and mean. The second key idea in Utah is the primary idea in terms of at least uh, the novelty, the breadth, the depth of it, and this is our tree of knowledge system. Specifically, the tree of knowledge system really should be thought of as a descriptive metaphysical system that affords us clarity about the ontological structure of the universe as it is mapped out by modern empirical natural science. What do I mean by that? Well, it affords a novel picture of big history as consisting of virtually all systems of big history, like the tree of knowledge, define it and frame it in terms of the evolution of, co of complexity or complexification or what Tyler Volk calls combogenesis, uh, which is part whole linking up to create larger patterns of differentiated integrated entities. What both actually Tyler Volk and I see um, and has been poorly delineated is the fact that there are actually different realms of evolution um, and then within that, there are different levels of emergence that take place within each realm or plane or dimension. The tree of knowledge makes this explicit by arguing that out of energy comes the first realm, the material realm of complexification. Out of material, the matter dimension comes the life dimension. Out of the life dimension, and this is missed by a huge number of people, and this is the absolute essence of why we need a metaphysics of mind and what the tree of knowledge is, out of life comes mind. Mind here refers to the mindedness of animals uh, or minded animals doing their thing in the world. This is the birds and bees behaving in the, uh, amongst the trees and flowers and behaving in a qualitatively different way. That's mindedness shortened to mind. And it's a description in the same way you would say the birds and the trees and the flowers are living creatures, unlike the streams and the rocks, which are inanimate. Living in this case is an adjective that tries to complexify behavior of trees and flowers. Mindedness or mind, the dimension of mind, refers to the complex activities of bees, 
birds and squirrels as they operate in relationship to a layer above the flowers and the trees. Okay? And these are nested dimensions of complexification. And then finally, of course, you get another dimension, another jump, another plane of existence with the emergence of the culture person plane of existence. This delineation, this metaphysical specification of the world as energy to matter, to life, to mind, to culture, and then the what will become then the theoretical joint points and afford clarity about how a complex dimension uh, adaptive plane of existence emerges, specifically how mind emerged out of life and culture emerged out of mind. Well, these, these are the key elements uh, that are going to afford us clarity to solve the problem of psychology, um, which is what the descriptive metaphysics affords in the tree of knowledge, which had not been done before. And if you wonder about that, look at a lot of big history things. In fact, the primary big history thing, just as eight thresholds, four of them in the physical world, then life, then you get jump all the way up to culture uh, and humans uh, and agriculture and language and things along those lines, missing completely um, the red dimension that's delineated here. It's absolutely essential to understand consciousness, emergence of knowledge, and the delineation uh, of complexification. Um, so the tree of knowledge creates these different planes of existence, specifies the joint points, delineates the difference between levels within and dimensions between, and then sets the stage for clarifying meta-theoretical structures. The third key idea is justification systems theory, and it speaks exactly to this issue of a joint point. So justification systems theory resides at the joint point, meaning it is a meta-theoretical system um, that ties together a bunch of ideas that provides a causal explanatory framework for the development of culture, specifically the justification hypothesis, which specifies the idea that propositional language created question-answer dynamics, created the problem of justification, and then the evolution of both culture as large-scale systems of justification that function to coordinate people, that's capital C culture, different than learned behavioral repertoires that are shared among a group. Capital C culture is the network of propositions that give rise to the world shared worldview. It's also crucial, as shown in this diagram, the network of justifications is also gonna give rise to science as a particular kind of justification system just also clarifies, especially relevant for human psychology, that A, humans have a whole nother mind on top of their animal primate mind, and we can differentiate this mind across different three core domains. There's a primate experiential self shared with other mammals and primates, and then there is a person narrator, the private self, the egoic function of justifying what is legitimate, what is not, and how do I talk to myself about myself on the social stage, and then how do I share it publicly, which I often refer to as the persona. So the experiential self, the ego or private self, the persona or public self, and just specifies not only these dimensions and why they are crucial, but it specifies the dynamic interrelationship with them with the filtering process, specifically the attentional filter, which is the relationship between conscious, subconscious, non-conscious processes and the experiential uh, witness function of the mind into then, a, which then is gripped by the primate self in terms of likes, wants, dislikes, in terms of what's self-referentially relevant, and then justified and fed back on by the ego and then regulated by uh, the persona all through the dynamic fluctuations of filtrations labeled here as the attentional filter and the Freudian filter and the Rogerian filter. But Utah doesn't just specify what it is that makes humans so discontinuous, it also affords us clarity about how the mind dimension emerges out of the life dimension and behavioral investment theory is the meta-theoretical structure that affords the joint point between life and mind. It gives rise to a cognitive behavioral neuroevolutionary formulation of the neurocognitive behavioral processes that coordinate animal investment. And what you see here is the architecture of the mind diagram that delineates four levels, layers of information processing, reactive procedural fixed action patterns into a perspectival, a perceptual, emotional, motivational, operant experiential dynamic mode into a capacity to project across time, plan, inhibit into talking. So you get reacting, learning, thinking, deliberating, and talking ultimately in humans. And it also shows in a kind of 
uh, consistent with research and memory, the processes by which working memory and long-term memory then store and iteratively relate uh, to an animal's experience. Crucially, as we have seen in a multiplicity of different um, conversations and cognitive science shows that John Verbeke and I have put on, um, John's formulation of recursive relevance realization across scale invariant multilayered modeling fits perfectly within and elaborates upon the weak neurocognitive predictive processing model that's embedded in neuro and behavioral investment theory. So what you get with John's view or John's perspective is a much richer, much more <clears throat> um, dynamically iterative process that allows us to clarify issues like intelligence, meaning of cognition, uh, perspectival consciousness, uh, the delineation relationship between different times of knowing and the overall concept of functional cognition. Um, and so the merger between John's meta theory of cognition and BIT is difficult to overstate because it shows a linkages between big picture systems that then can become increasingly complementary and synergistic. The fifth key idea is the influence matrix. The influence matrix maps the primate heart. It specifies the idea that we are tracking the social place, our social influence and relational value, this is the black line, where we're tracking the extent to which we can move others in accordance with our interests and are seen, known, and valued by important others, and the processes by which we're going to negotiate social exchange and develop our place in the social matrix, either hierarchically, a blue line, where do we rank on particular dimensions of direct or indirect dominance? On the red line, how are we going to join interests, give to others, and cooperate, or have to diverge interests and then engender hostility, uh, pull hostility to engender hostility, and compete with one another in relationship, at times in destructive, non-cooperative sorts of ways? And then how much involvement is necessary? What kind of physiological and emotional dependencies do we have? What kind of distance do we need for our own individuation? And how do we navigate that? Um, the blue red and green lines of the matrix delineate uh, these elements and represent the core of our primate heart, what Maslow would uh, specify in terms of the hierarchy of needs, where we have our organism, animal, mammal needs for safety and clarity and territory, those elements, and then we get up to a primate heart needs. The primate heart needs really are structured around issues of belonging, so red line, esteem, blue line, black line kinds of notions uh, in relation. The sixth key idea uh, here in, in the structure that we're going through bridges us into uh, the unified approach. Those first ideas two uh, um, through five make up the unified theory of psychology. This is the bridge uh, that I developed uh, to organize the, the field of psychotherapy and to show that really what psychotherapy fundamentally is about uh, is orienting towards different uh, processes of adapt adaptation. And the different schools of thought have actually been honing in on different processes of adaptation. The unified theory illuminates these processes of adaptation of five systems of character adaptation, the basic reactive and then procedural structure of the habit system, an online experiential system where perceptions are referenced against motives that give rise to emotions shared with mammals, a primate heart system that's grounded in attachment, belonging, and esteem needs mapped out by the matrix. I jump up to the cognitive level of justification at the level of human persons. And then it's the relationship between that egoic structure, the animal structure, and the persona and the standards of society that can create so much dynamic tension, as Freud observed, and then the development of defense structures to maintain a equilibrium at the level of justification. This is cognitive dissonance equilibrium at the level of pain, at the level of trauma, to get repression organizing many different structures in relation to the way the Freudian filter navigates the experiential self and the processes by which you then try to rationalize your way of being on the social stage. So the defensive system very much corresponds to the Freudian and Rogerian filters and the process of the dynamic equilibrium or lack thereof or the attempts to maintain it uh, that flow through the systems. And these different systems of adaptation then operate on different time frames, have different basic structural functional relations. So you can think about them as sort of like, just like we have organ systems in the body, um, they're mental systems of adaptation. The different primary individual schools of thought have focused on different aspects of character adaptation. The unified theory shows how we can twist, uh, tr transform, uh, take and assimilate and spin 
these key insights from the schools of thought and then place them into a particular holistic view. The seventh key idea refers to the wheel of development. And this basically specifies as individuals develop across time, they develop a particular type of uh, uh, domains of functioning that can be readily identified in terms of what it means to know who they are. Um, and the wheel of development identifies the trait dispositional signatures that individuals develop. This will be mapped by your big five. The identity that an individual carries, their self-concept and narrative arc in terms of how they see themselves in the world, who they are, what their story is. The beliefs, values, and virtues about what is good, the worldview that they carry, what is good, what makes uh, for a good person, how do they strive to that. Their abilities and talents, this would be like a Howard Gardner domain you know, multiple talents, you can get into what actually really is the term by what we should use as intelligence, but certainly there are a multiplicity of different talents, music talents, verbal IQ, mathematical abilities, then people develop and then become part of their repertoire. And then finally, there are challenges and pathologies where people get trapped in particular ways of responding to the world, have particular kinds of limitations, and then get reciprocally narrowed into particular dead ends that uh, result in all sorts of difficulties functioning. The nested model of well-being is also part of the unified approach in the sense that both all of this is about the mapping of character adaptation development into clarity about what we would conceptualize as optimal uh, functioning. The nested model of well-being, though, is a descriptive metaphysical picture of what well-being is. In other words, what it is about really is describing the key elements that go into characterizing the concept of well-being. It identifies them as four different domains. There's a subjective qualitative experience of being, which actually will have a primate affective experience, the both state and trait, positive, negative affect, as well as a person reflective dimension that generalizes, say, hey, what's my overall level of life satisfaction? And then divides one's world up into things like my relationship, my significant other, my job, uh, my personal functioning, my trauma history, et cetera and then says, how am I doing in these particular areas? We can actually map subjective well-being that way. We can then look at the functioning of the individual, both from, say, a medical perspective, the biophysiological functioning of the organism, that would be the outer blue ring, um, and then the inner blue ring, the psychological blue ring, would be a way a psychological doctor, like I did with a, a layman Pascal, a psychological doctor, with a well-being checkup. What is the individual's functioning from the outside what is the richness and depth of their ego functioning? How well do they mentalize others? What kind of affective regulation, coherent integration do they engage in? How well are they able to achieve their goals? In what way are they contributing to the lives of others as opposed to the converse? And then we place all of that in the environmental uh, context, both the material environmental context and a social environmental context. That's their uh, yellow line. So you have a subjective experience of being a functioning organism, a functioning psychological system uh, that's coordinating behavioral investments, that's evaluated by a psychological doctor. Then you can look at it and, well, okay, what's the overall network of environment, material environment and social environment, and how does that afford the resources? And then finally, um, well-being is, the metaphysics of well-being is that it's a normative or prescriptive con uh, concept, meaning you cannot use the term without creating a particular values hierarchy and saying what is optimal, what is good. The people have different theories about that, different content about that, but the concept of wellness and well-being well requires a valuative normative structure. And so those values have to be identified. Ultimately, what this suggests is it actually echoes a Kant view of what well-being is. And it suggests that well-being is happiness with the worthiness to be happy, then defined by values and functionality at the different levels specified by the nested model. The ninth key insight is COMMO. It's an integrative model of psychological mindfulness that argues what we need to be able to cultivate in ourselves is a particular perspective of you from above. It's a participant observer, metacognitive um, uh, observer that steps outside the stream and creates a new subject object relationship with one's thoughts and then cultivates a particular um, attitude about one's thoughts and being in the world that is curious, that's accepting, that's loving, compassionate, and motivated to learn and grow towards valued states of being. I'm happy to say that one of my students, Charles Miller, just defended uh, an excellent dissertation on COMMO, showed how these concepts actually have already, are already used in many interventions or organized by a wide variety of different um, approaches from ACT, 
uh, to Paul Gilbert's compassion therapy, um, to issues of DBT, to issue of motivational interviewing, stage change, um, and a whole bunch of other particular types of perspectives. And what Kamendu does is he argues that ties together a wide variety of different structures. As we will see later on, we're going to tie CommMO to neurotic looping as a specific mapping of what can go wrong and how to utilize CommMO and when to stop a neurotic maladaptive process. You talk item 10 is the wicked wisdom bee, or more briefly, just the bee of Sophia. Uh, Sophia is the love of wisdom, is knowledge about how to achieve wisdom. Um, and what we have with the Bia Sophia is essentially as a representation of the metaphysics of knowing and the metaphysics of sharing knowledge. Um, its technical name is the Wicked Wisdom Bee. The Wicked refers to an inversion of the DIKW knowledge uh, system, where basically it's Wicked as wisdom, knowledge, information, and data. Uh, what this suggests is way knowers pull in data organize that into information, solidify it into knowledge, and then utilize that to orient towards wisdom. Uh, indeed, we can think about this sort of as the vertical dimension uh, on the tree of knowledge as epistemic knowers are pulling off information as living creatures into uh, knowledge systems that they have and then generate um, uh, large-scale ideas for wisdom. The back half of the B represents uh, a nod to Ken Wilber's quadrants, um, the wisdom actually then refers to holistic systemic, um, which actually be the tree of knowledge is going to be the placeholder for that. Intersubjective cultural, which would be just uh, also the garden, meaning that this is the process by which systems come together to create collective narrative we spaces that create shared belief value systems about what is and ought to be inside of a culture. The subjective mental phenomenological here we're actually going to use the icon coin as a particular representation uh, if we're going to then say capture this particular quadrant of Wilbur and then finally behavior from a more traditional individual level. So the wicked wisdom bee basically wants to help structure the metaphysics of knowing from data to information and knowledge to wisdom and organize the epistemological frames and basically create a bridge between Wilbur's structures and Utah structures, and that's inside this piece to help understand the metaphysics of knowing, and then utilize that metaphysics of knowing to understand how to then pollinate uh, data and knowledge, information and knowledge to cultivate ultimately wisdom. Item 11 is the WIC WB. This is the B of Phrenesis. This is the most humble of the ideas. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward idea um, that basically represents the worker um, doing that which cultivates good in their lives. So yeah, you're, when you're engaged in, hey, I'm going to be a good citizen, uh, I liken this be to the actual National Honor Society mottos in relationship to cultivating character and doing so with integrity and things along those lines. Um, the WIC WB comes from a consolidation of the four, uh, consolidating the eight branches into two pair, pairs each uh, so that knowledge uh, the tree of knowledge and just turn into wisdom, uh, influence, the influence matrix behavior investment theory represents an interest, the wheel of development and cast represents character, and then well-being and the common uh, mo represent well-being well and how to cultivate it. Um, that's where it comes from. Uh, inside the bee are these etched uh, elements like wisdom, character, interests, uh, and, and well-being. And basically what we're after here uh, is suggesting to individuals your embodied, actual, adaptive living and the constructive structures of being that cultivate uh, wisdom, interest, character, and well-being is what the B represents. And so with the B of Sophia, we have a more abstract um, analysis of particular structures of knowing. With the B of Phrenesis, you have, hey, what are you actually doing in the world to cultivate uh, the development of the good? The 12th uh, idea of the Utah 20 is the radical mathematical humanistic equation. Um, this the radical mathematical humanistic equation is a combination of the Euler identity, that's e to the i pi plus one equals zero with what's called the Henriquez equivalency, which is two pi i f. Now, I cannot get into the details of the radical mathematical humanistic equation other than to say that it links, it creates a associative identity network that links mathematics to physics to the knowing observer. 
I develop what's called the iQuad path that connects these ideas. Uh, and ultimately, which we will then kind of come back to, it relates deeply. Uh, the iQuad path starts with one and one equaling i quad, which is i to the fourth. This ultimately opens up a matrix, a complex uh, matrix of real versus imaginary that's actually going to create a placeholder for the human psyche and the process by which it creates knower functions that are mapping to reality in particular ways. Uh, it's worth noting here just to allude to some of the equivalencies in associative identity network structures that I engage in that I quad equals one, not accidentally, uh, as does the Henricus equivalency to pi I f. Uh, those linkages are all part of a very deep architectural structure that are connecting the metaphysics of knowing and observation, the emergence of a physical universe, and the mathematics, in particular, some of the quantum mechanics mathematics, some of Planck-Einstein relations uh, that I think afford us a capacity to see more coherently a network between general relativity, quantum mechanics, and a specific knower knowing about the universe. The 13th key idea is called the educational infinity loop. This is what it looks like here. It enables us a way to coherently frame key domains in education. Now, if you're an educator, if you know an ed, um, went through uh, K through 12, you'll know that in the United States, there are four major domains of education, language, math, science, and social studies. Um, what the educational infinity loop suggests is we're actually missing uh, two key domains. Uh, I derive these from understanding of just and the nature of the way in which justification systems have different aspects to them, and also looking at different categories. But fundamentally, what this says is actually we need language, clarity about grammar, rhetoric, and the art of language. We need mathematics, clarity about quantitative, deductive logical relations in sets and groups. We need science as an empirical correspondent theory of truth. We need a phenomenological, psychic, subjective approach that understands qualitative experience of being. We do need social studies and social sciences, and we need ethics and decision-making, uh, the values that were in axiological structures that we're going to use uh, as a deep informing of what it is that we think is good relative to evil. Speaking of which, uh, item 14 is the wisdom energy icon. The wisdom energy icon basically represents a way to consolidate core values um, its essence is representing what I, uh, I call my core or ultimate justification, which is being that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. Dignity here is derived from the United uh, Nations Declaration of uh, Human Rights, whereby all justice claims that protect individuals' rights are then grounded in the idea that humans have fundamental dignity. Fundamental dignity means that they're warrant, have value, and warrant respect um, and to be treated in a dignified as opposed to indignant manner. So there's a foundational dignity. I also believe in incremental dignity, which is a slightly different concept, but the process by which we engage in the world in a way that a, a warrants respect from self and from others or does not. Um, those are two different but related concepts. We already discussed well-being as it's mapped by the nested model. Integrity refers to honor, honesty, truth, uh, and the value of that. Um, and we can represent, whereas dignity is represented by United Nations and Declaration of Rights that legitimize essentially much of what that organization does globally, well-being uh, can be understood as that which the World Health Organization is oriented to addressing at the biological, psychological, and social levels. And then finally, uh, integrity can be thought of in relationship to science and the scientific enterprise of developing a sound, true, accurate, honest uh, model of the world. All of these ideas, the last three that I uh, connect, the radical mathematical humanist equation, educational infinity loop, and the uh, um, wisdom energy icon are all captured by the seed. The 15th idea is the stepping stone. It grounds, the, it grounds Utah in modern physics. It stands for the standard theory of elementary particle physics. Um, and just basically represents a particular kind of uh, diagrammatic representation that I found to be quite useful in helping me map the standard model. There's nothing here that's new or particularly creative, um, although Utah does offer some interesting metaphysical, physical specifications about the relationship between energy and space and matter. 
um, specifically, it actually identifies matter um, or suggests we should conceptualize matter as the first dimension of complexification. Of course, that's not how it's normally defined in physics, which is basically matter particles, which are fermions, which obey the Pauli exclusion principle or whatever. I don't need to get into any of that. But the bottom line is, is that um, uh, Utah does afford a new way to think about energy, information, matter, space-time relations uh, with its articulation that matter is a new dimension of complexification that emerges out of energy. Regardless, the stepping stone simply says that we are following, like good reductionists, but also holistic systemic thinkers, we're following the line of development down into the four fundamental forces, and as they give rise to bosons, uh, fermions, and the like. The ground of uh, the stepping stone grounds what's called the periodic table of behavior. The periodic table of behavior is the 16th key idea. And what it shows, which is something I already alluded to when I spoke of the tree of knowledge, is it ex explicates with clarity the need to differentiate our, uh, the processes by, of emergence and clarify that there are levels within dimensions as well as jumps between dimensions. So there's these dimensions of behavioral complexity or complexification, matter, life, mind, and culture. It gives rise to general object field relations that are operated on these different planes of existence and that there are primary specific levels within them. So uh, we get a pure energy information base that gives rise to particles mapped by the stepping stone. And then the atoms are the primary level, parts, particles beneath them. And then groups of atoms give rise to molecules. And then we can think about molecules as well as particles and atoms expanding across aggregate space-time scale, meaning more and more of them you get, you get different properties. So you want to consider basically a dimension of aggregation uh, coming off the periodic table of behavior going further. So the numbers of them across scale, that these identify the primary part, primary whole and primary group levels. And then we jump into life where the primary part here, especially emphasizing an informational part of the gene, the primary whole is the cell. Cells then organize into multi-cell or you go from prokaryotic to eukaryotic with really a cell fusion. And then you get into multicellular creatures um, and colonies and groups of cells that are behaving uh, as wholes. And of course, you then also would extend the aggregate system. Uh, so you get groups of cells across many different give rise to ecologies. Then you get the emergence of the mind dimension. Here again, we can identify a core informational unit in terms of a neural network that's affording the transfer of input, computational relation, output structures. And then that gets embedded in nervous system brain that are coordinating uh, holistic animal behavior. And that's a totally different dimension of complexification according to Utah. So we get mind one, which simply refers to the overt doings of an animal mediated by the neuroinformation that's instantiated and processed within uh, the nervous system uh, that actually bridges mental behavioral mentalists and behaviorist constructions of uh, animal behavior. Um, then mind two emerges at some point, but as we'll see, it's tricky. Uh, mind, and then you get family groups. And then finally, you get the problem of proposition, you get propositional language, the problem of justification, you get then symbolic justification taking root, you know, 200,000 years ago and by 50,000 years ago, it's in full swing. You give rise to the culture person plane of existence. Um, we navigate that via mind three processes. I'll talk more about uh, the map of mind in a second here. Uh, and then you get collections of justifications at different levels of family, community, nations. The periodic table of behavior clarifies one of the great mysteries in psychology, which is what is behavior. Of course, psychology was generally defined as the science of behavior and mental processes. Uh, Utah says, oh my gosh, we've totally screwed this up. The periodic table of behavior says actually mental behaviors are a particular kind of behavior as opposed to material behaviors, living behaviors, and cultural behaviors. And it also then suggests that actually, when we use the term mental processes, we are confounding a number of different elements. Um, for example, there's the neuro information that's instantiated within um, uh, the nervous system that we can call that mind 1A. That's a, and then we have the overt activity of the animal, which is mind 1B. Notice the term mind here is refers to the kind of behavior, overt activity, the doings of the animal, which is totally then different than material behavior. Like if an animal falls out of a tree, the gravitational structure is one dimensional behavior. The way it lands and runs off, in my favorite you know, cat example, that's mental behavior, what it's doing, landing and running off, as opposed to the falling behavior, which is material. 
it's remarkable that uh, psychologists confound the word behavior and utilize both. Mind two refers to a subjective conscious experience of being, which is only available from the interior epistemology. Behavioral investment theory, especially coupled to John's um, uh, uh, recursive relevance realization, affords us a lot of clarity about a, a sophisticated neurocognitive behavioral functional analysis that's consistent with evolutionary, developmental, and phenomenological perspectives, as well as cognitive behavioral neuroscience. We also have uh, a private egoic self-consciousness system, of which the Unified theory affords us clarity with in terms of justification systems. So the map of mind delineates that mental processes actually have a wide variety of different domains. At a minimum, there are five different domains that have to be differentiated as a function of their um, epistemological structure. Sorry, there's a timer on that, but I didn't see. So now, <clears throat> so, uh, and and the, when you look carefully at the periodic table of behavior and map of mind, you realize that psychology's commitment uh, to behavior and mental processes, this is also clear in the tree of knowledge, is enormously ambiguous with regard to what the referent is. Uh, hence, of course, it's methodological psychology, really, which is we're just going to apply the methods of science, but we're not going to get clear about the ontology. And what this does is gives us a descriptive metaphysics, gets clear about the ontology, and then utilizes just behavioral investment theory in the matrix to create a meta-theoretical architecture. Crucial to all of this was where things started for me, which is in the psychotherapy room. The 18th domain uh, in the Utah 20 is called the dragon's lair. Uh, the dragon's lair is a little new to some folks, although I've alluded to it a number of different times. It consists of uh, a shadow dragon, so your shadow, and all things you're particularly afraid of, that's what that is in the background, that lives in the cave of behavioral shutdown, which means it's reciprocally narrow, trapped, and finds itself hopeless and helpless, uh, filled with rage, irritability, and suffering. It's tied to triple negative neurotic loops. The triple negative neurotic loop is when negative events and situations hit negative feelings. And then those, that conglomerate is not held in a way that's adaptively uh, metabolized in what's called the emotional sweet spot, but instead it is reacted to with a secondary negative, and in this case, maladaptive reaction. Very often, the ABCs of this third negative reaction, this secondary you know, reaction to the negative feeling, negative situation, is either avoidance, oh my God, I can't do this, possibly think about this, blame, how could you or how could I do this in ineffectual ways, and misguided control. So avoidance, blame, and control often function then sort of as water to a grease fire in the sense that they sort of make sense as individuals try to like, okay, I'm going to do what I can to avoid this negative situation, negative feeling dynamic. But unfortunately, they create frag, uh, fragile defenses that fail for the individual to grow and learn. And over time, what can happen is it can trap them into identity, affective, relational dynamics uh, that are characteristic of personality disorders uh, over uh, the shadow dragon is the personality disorder star, which identifies key polarities coming off the matrix. This is a relationship between narcissistic and avoidant, which happen to be polar opposites, schizoid and histrionic, and dependent and antisocial. These are examples of different types of strategies that individual, Karen Horn and I identify the rigid strategies as people get further and further defensive and try to apply particular ways of being, but ultimately they're out of balance and maladaptive. Um, and so what we have here is the process by which uh, an unfolding uh, occurs that drives people away from the garden, underneath the garden, into hell, into the cave of behavioral shutdown. And the garden suggests that part of the issue, uh, at least in relationship to the applied, is to understand your triple negative neurotic looping, understand how shutdown gives rise to greater shutdown, and then to reverse that, bring a calm MO flashlight to the outer realm of maladaptive patterns of avoidance, blame, and control, and re reverse them with curiosity, acceptance, loving compassion, and motivated toward valued states of being both intrapsychically and interpersonally. Ultimately, then, um, what in what service are, are we after? Relating somewhat to the wisdom energy icon is the elephant sun god. The elephant sun god is a representation of humans' capacity to project onto the world and develop ideas about what is true, good, and beautiful. It explicitly connects the idea of the sun god Ra um, from the Bronze Age in terms of the god of light, the god of power, so the god of all, 
to Ganesha in Hinduism, which is a god of wisdom, god of intellect. So it's going to tie power and intellect together. Um, and also the elephant here is a reference to my uh, emphasis on thinking about psychology as blind men and the elephant. This gives rise to a pluralistic notion and myself as an agnostic atheist connecting to the concept of God. I now consider myself also a synthiast, meaning I believe in the concept of God and the concept of God can be utilized as an ultimate guidepost as a what Corbin calls a divine double or at least you know kind of a guidepost toward that as we think about who can we be under God in a way that is oriented towards wisdom oriented towards the true good and beautiful and away from evil um, how do we sort of collectively come together and move toward valued states of being to put it in the common light well the shining light of the concept of God across the arc of humanity affords us one way of representing that and then relating that in a way that's pluralistic into the epicenter of that, but also in a way that's uh, pluralistic and flexible and adaptive is what the sun god means. And then finally, we get back to the I-quad. So the I-quad initially just held you in relationship to your psyche. And now we rotate the I-quad coin to identify this then as representing the human identity function. So the human identity function then situates the, the, ep the psyche as an epistemic knower about the known that generates an imaginal function, meaning sort of a holographic virtual function that's corresponding its structure in relationship uh, to the world, okay? And the identification of it as a human justifier and as a primate is then symbolized by the nature of the rotation of the coin. The argument in Utah is that we can finally fill the gap between our broad natural science knowledge systems our understanding of psychology and the therapeutics of what would give rise to the maladaptive that could be then reversed into adaptive processes and understand the specific ideographic particular qualitative knower relative to the generalized nomenthetic uh, quantitative known. This is then found when we think about mirroring the tree of knowledge to the coin. So the coin then represents each of us as our idiosyncratic subjective position in the world we can see ourselves as material objects from the inside, living organisms, mental animals, and cultural persons. We can then suggest that there is the ontic real dimension, which is that which is known. And there's an epistemic imaginal dimension, which is the knowing processes, which afford us the capacity to make semantic sense out of the world. If we put these on in relationship to the tree of knowledge, we can argue that actually uh, the time dimension can be thought of in relationship to the ontic real and imagine and emerging out of that are different epistemic systems that give rise to the complex adaptive behavioral patterns so that we have a material complexification process that initially emerges at the inanimate layer. Then we get living epistemic process genes that carry information and afford an, uh, an input output process structure that allows the cell to detect forms in formations and then, and then bring together energy, matter, information structures as a complex adaptive system, network together, enable its self-organizing uh, autopoetic nature. And then you get a mental epistemic structure with a nervous system in animals, and then finally a cultural epistemic. And now we have a scientific epistemic function, and we're able to see then a scientific epistemic function that can hold the individual psyche and place that in relationship to logic and mathematics and philosophy, meaning we're going to actually, there is a connection here between the complex unit circle and the idea of the real imaginary and ontic and epistemic as real imaginal functions. And we can then connect an exterior generalizable quantitative behavioral view that's outside in to an inside out qualitative subjective unique particular view. And this is the rotation uh, that is represented, the I-quad correction uh, that is represented by the twist of the coin. So we placed you, uh, as you entered into the system, we've now rotated you around the system and hopefully then providing a structure that allows an ontic, epistemic, onto-epistemological alignment. And to that extent, then we can get an energy information field theory that bridges scientific psychology and the rest of the natural sciences to the individual psyche and ultimately, the hope then is that maybe we can then build 
a system that's oriented that of coherent knowledge, a naturalistic ontology that places the human soul and spirit in right relation that affords us a move towards a more wisdom orientation. And the collective you talk 20 is about watching us drift from the countdown of chaotic fragmented pluralism uh, of the enlightenment gap, the problem of psychology, problem of psychotherapy into the psyche, and then become aware of the psyche and the field of energy information knowing from the inside out, and then place that in the context of generalized third person epistemic scientific knowledge in right relation, and then afford us an understanding of the kind of collective mythos that we need to engage in to address the meaning and mental health crisis and orient us all toward wiser living. Okay, so there it is. That's happened. Uh, so that's the Talk 20 in just under an hour. Um, for those of you that watch that, I hope you found it to be somewhat uh, helpful and insightful. Uh, there are a lot of possible interconnections that I could have made that I sort of uh, skipped over, but I was hoping to make this uh, tape in about an hour, uh, and I think uh, we're ba basically at that point. Um, so welcome to a special edition, or we'll bring the special edition of you talking with Greg, with Greg, to a close, uh, and I hope you found uh, this mapping of the Utah 20 and what it might afford us uh, as we move forward in the 21st century uh, to be of some utility. Take care.